Thank you, Hal, and welcome to our second service here on Resurrection Sunday. Resurrection Sunday is uh, how I designate the day because it is very descriptive of what happened today. Uh, we in the Western world are sometimes, uh, I wouldn't say misinformed, but we have a little bit of a different impression of exactly how this uh, was all occurring in the Middle East. And I don't want to go into it in any great detail today, but remember that in the Middle East, particularly for Israel, that their days ended and began at what we would probably call dusk. And so when we think of uh, early morning, the Lord uh, rising early morning and the, the women going to the uh, to the tomb, that is true. That is uh, when they went. But that really wasn't the, the first part of the day for them. Their day started much earlier. And it's all an interesting study as you read through uh, the text and the, and the Gospels. But we have this morning, as we always do on the first Sunday of the month, second service, we celebrate communion and how appropriate it is for us to celebrate communion today. So this is our opportunity to uh, not only on Resurrection Day remember what occurred during that week and on that day, but to also reflect with hopefully many, many other thousands, millions even of believers around the world who are celebrate, celebrating the empty tomb, the empty tomb, which is um, our evidence, part of our evidence for a risen Savior. Let's take a few seconds, closing our eyes and bowing our heads. This is your opportunity for confession of sins and uh, preparation for our communion service. Dearly Father, we are thankful for the remarkable love that you have toward us. We're thankful, Father, that your love is expressed to us in your gift, your perfect gift to us of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful, Father, for your plan, your plan that sent him to the cross. And on the cross, he has redeemed us from that slave market, that slave market of sin, from which we could have done nothing. But in his sacrificial, substitutionary death, Father, we are freed. We are freed to believe, simply believe in his work, what he has accomplished what he completed, what he designated as having been finished. And at that point, Father, in simple faith, the simple exhale of that faith, we may have a relationship with you, eternal life, an eternal destiny. And you view us with his righteousness. Father, we pray as we approach the Lord's Supper that we will be focused. It's so easy for our minds to wander. But this is really the reason why the Lord Jesus Christ changed the Passover meal so that we would focus on him and what he's done. We pray for that ability, Father, that concentration. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are here this morning to remember the Lord's death on the cross. And again, it's uh, very apropos that we have uh, our communion service on the first day of the week, the first day of the month. And for many, uh, it may very well be April Fool's Day. They may see this as something that is truly ludicrous for believers to think that someone could go to a cross, pay the penalty for not just himself or for a few others, but for in, but in fact 
the entire world. And that after his death, he would rise again. And for many, it's too much to believe. It's too hard. It's too hard to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, deity, in incarnation, could possibly enter into the world in this way. And that on the cross, his humanity would die, but that his humanity, which is uh, indivisibly connected with his deity, would rise again and this time to new life. In John 19, in John 19, we see the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And verse 17 says, I'll begin just a little bit early. This is John 19. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. And that's our Aramaic for the skull. It says that that is where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. And forever, that has been our picture. These three crosses... And the three crosses, of course, are empty. They're empty because this was a historical fact. And the historical fact is that they all died. They all were buried. They were all taken from the cross, crosses. And two of them remain in the grave today. But one does not. And another symbol of the empty cross which we have here, is that the cross is a symbol of his death, burial, and resurrection. It's not a symbol of his continuing suffering for sins. He paid for our sins. He died. He was buried. And he was resurrected. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. I believe that Pilate puts the king of the Jews on the cross for at least one reason. First of all, this was the reason that the chief priests finally brought him in front of Pilate so that he could be condemned for treason and sedition. And therefore, even though Pilate knew this wasn't true, he decides to use it against the Jews because the Jews did not want Jesus to be called the king of the Jews. They simply used it. And they accused him of having stated that. And so Pilate puts it on the title that says the king of the Jews and the Jews hated it. Verse 20. Then many of the Jews... Then, uh, then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what, a, what I have written, I have written. In other words, it's going to stand. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now, skipping down to verse 25. Verse 25 says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother, Mary, and his mother's sister, we believe this is Salome, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing by he said to his mother woman behold your son then he said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her to his own 
Now, this is a, a remarkable part of the crucifixion because even on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ had the responsibility, the sense of responsibility as the eldest son towards his mother. And it very well may be that his brothers, who, who did not believe in him, were not there. Now, I'm sure that James, who we believe to be the next older brother, would have fulfilled that responsibility of taking care of his mother. But the Lord ensures that it is accomplished. And we're going to see in our service, following the communion, uh, the Lord's Supper, that the Lord is constantly duty-bound. There is a rectitude in him that is established on a righteousness that compels him to act, even in the most desperate or the horrific situations. And he simply takes the responsibility for his mother because he wants her to have, have the care that she needs and will deserve. And of course, the, the unnamed disciple here is believed to be John. Throughout his, uh, his gospel, he, doesn't ref- he never refers to himself. He always refers to that disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved. Verse 28 says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, so this is at the end of the day. He's been on the cross. Now, for what we believe is probably uh, somewhere close to six to nine hours. And it says that Scripture had been accomplished, that he said, I thirst. Now Now a vessel full of wine was sitting there, And they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, in other words, slaked his thirst, uh, we're told that one of the extremes of crucifixion is an an exceedingly dry mouth. You're just parched. You are, um, you're perspiring. Uh, There is every... Uh, means of dehydration and very often people are so dry they cannot speak and so the Lord here is thirsty but he needs to say something else and it is probably the most important thing that he will say And, and he says so when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it's finished and bowing his head he gave up his spirit and I think at that point the Lord Jesus Christ knows that he has accomplished the mission for which he was sent to the earth, for which he was sent to the cross, and for which he has endured this crucifixion. And it's important for us to understand that the elements that we will see this morning bear in two areas. The first area is his qualifications to go to the cross. And his qualifications to go to the cross means he had to be impeccable. He had to be sinless. And the bread represents the person of our Lord Jesus Christ in the fact that he was sinless. The uh, cute little innocent lamb here represents that. The Lord Jesus Christ going to the cross was innocent. There was absolutely nothing he did during his time on earth. And there was nothing that he accomplished for which he was arrested that was ever factual or proven. And so he goes to the cross as an innocent man and as the lamb of the world that's going to take away the sins of the world. Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. Secondly, we have the cup, which illustrates the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, his spiritual death on the cross. It's very evident that when he says it's finished, that he's still alive. He's still alive physically, but it's his spiritual death that provides spiritual life for us. And then it's important for us to understand that the eating and drinking is a symbol. It's an expression of our faith. Faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Another way of expressing that when we talk about the word of God being God-breathed, it's God's breath towards us and we inhale that and then simply exhale faith. And so the understanding here is by taking the bread 
and taking the cup and then eating and drinking. We are expressing our faith, our belief in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just prior to beginning, although we've already had a few seconds for confession of sins, we always stop just one more time. And it may not necessarily be for confession, although the Apostle Paul did warn us that we must make sure that we do not take the Lord's Supper uh, in sin when we're out of fellowship. But it's also one more opportunity for us to simply stop and focus on what we're doing on the cup, on the bread and on the cup so that we're truly now concentrating, concentrating on the purpose for which the Lord Jesus Christ established this ritual. And therefore, I'm going to ask the deacons who will be assisting me or those who will be assisting me to come forward. And while you are closing your eyes and bowing your heads as your opportunity for this last uh, minute preparation, I'll ask Brad Stebbins if he would give thanks for the bread. Let's bow our heads. It's our custom to hold the bread until all have been served. Once more, the bread, the wafer that we hold in our hands, <clears throat> represents our Lord's spiritual perfection. Our Lord Jesus Christ, um, as stated by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that on the same night in which he was betrayed, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I'll ask Ramsey to give thanks for the cup. It's our custom to hold the cup until all have been served. The cup of juice represents his blood, which in turn represents his death, his spiritual death. And in Ephesians 1.7, we're told, in him we have redemption. We have redemption through his blood, his spiritual death, the forgiveness of sins. And therefore, after supper, we're told that he takes the cup in like manner, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this opportunity to constantly remember, to refresh, to concentrate on the foundation of our future, of our eternal life, of our eternal destiny. Father, we're, we are thankful that our Lord Jesus Christ is not only a Savior, the Savior, but He is a living Savior. And we're thankful that He is to return to us someday. Because, Father, we have also been told in the same passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And the encouragement is that he is returning for us. And, Father, we shall live with him and you in eternity. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that this would be a meaningful ritual to us, not something that we simply do once a month. Father, we ask now for your blessing upon the service as we continue our study and our commitment, Father, to this resurrection day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our custom to stand at the end of our service and sing a hymn as the Lord Jesus Christ did with his disciples. Please stand. Open your hymnals to page 258. This is our opportunity to, as I like to describe, 
reciprocate in grace, in love, to, um, to God for his marvelous and wonderful provisions for us. We have been blessed, and this is our opportunity to respond to that. And the Apostle Paul tells us that each one of us should give, not under compulsion or reluctantly, for the Lord loves a gracious, a willing, and it's actually translated a cheerful giver. Therefore, as we uh, continue on this Resurrection Sunday, we have this opportunity to, to give. I'll ask the deacons to come forward. Let's bow, bow our heads in prayer. Dearly Father, we are thankful for your gracious provision, and we're thankful that you've given us the opportunity to give because this is part of our priesthood, and it's something that we do willingly. It's not something that we're forced to do. We should never feel a compulsion, but we should have the sense that it is a privilege. And Father, we are thankful that when we give, you resupply us. We ask, Father, for your blessing upon the offering and also on our service. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are going to do something this morning. And uh, I was a little anxious to get to this. But we are going to, as we continue our Resurrection Sunday, uh, even though we studied James in the first service, today is Resurrection Sunday. And I wanted to, to do something today that um, is a little different. But it demonstrates who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And there are so many events that could be picked. And as you read through the Gospels, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, there are many individual events that occurred. And in this ordeal of our Lord going to the cross, beginning, we could probably even begin earlier in the week, but I'm seeing this on the night that he was arrested. Uh, our Lord encountered many people, uh, hundreds for certain, and maybe even thousands. And their lives were changed. Many of their lives were not only changed somewhat, but changed dramatically. And there's one chance encounter that night in the garden that seems to be important, and we'll determine why that is as we go. It was simply one example of our Lord's compassion and what I would describe as his rectitude. I've already used that word once. It's a word that we find in our Declaration of Independence, but it's a reference to his righteousness. We could say his devotion to uh, that which is right, his commitment But his devotion to righteousness here is going to be seen, exemplified, in the midst of injustice, the injustice that he was enduring and that he would endure. I don't really have a specific name for this, but I'm going to call it the master's touch. The master's touch. And simply as we move through this, and We'll move through it rather rapidly. There are many things that we could uh, that we could learn, but I think one of the things that we learn here is that there is a reason why God the Holy Spirit records certain events, and this event He does, and it may seem rather harmless. The word is innocuous. But it's important. And God the Holy Spirit not only records it, but he records it very effectively. And as we look at this, we realize that there were probably many famous people who were involved in this night's work. Whether it was the high priest, whether it were certain officials, in the uh, those that came to get the Lord Jesus Christ. We might even say that, really, in certain positions, we, we had the disciples. But later on, we'll see Pilate, and we'll see other members of the Praetorian Guard. But we also have one who is named in one of the Gospels who was a slave. He was 
The slave, the doulos, is the word that's used in all four Gospels. He is a slave. He's a servant. And his name is Mal, Malchus, as the Greek is sort of a key there. We would have to uh, give a to our, our, our uh, pronunciation. But Malchus is going to be fine. And Malchus is the servant of the high priest. And we don't learn that from every one of the Gospels, but we learn that from John. Uh, We're not specifically told the role that he's going to play in this event. He's just there. But there are no accidents in God's plan. We might say, well, you know, it was just a coincidence. He didn't have anything to do that night, and the high priest let him go early. I believe that the high priest had a lot to do that night. He was counting on a full night, and he would probably need this slave. So he was there for a reason, and we may not be told what the reason is, but this is not a mistake. This is not just by chance he was there. And if that was the case, he wouldn't have been in the position he was. No, he appears to be in a position of importance. But he plays a role in this drama. He was there. His involvement becomes inspired, recorded, and I think somewhat prominent, we could say. Now, many people would have a vivid memory of that night, but I think that Malchus here is probably going to have one that was not only unforgettable, but probably was life-changing for him. And I think that's one of the reasons why John mentions his name. So we have the background. First of all, the next thing we could say under the, the background here is that there is no one who is unimportant to the Lord. Malchus was probably very important to the high priest, but he was a slave, a servant. And while he was probably treated well, he would be considered on the lower rank of society. But there is no one who is unimportant to our Lord. There is no one who is not affected by our Lord's life, death, and resurrection. The Lord went to the cross for the entire world. Not just for those who would revere him or believe, but for the entire world. Every person who has ever lived. And so, there are no incidental people in life. And that night, Malchus was not simply there by chance, nor was he incidental to the event. The event. The event is recorded in all four Gospels. There are many important events that happened that night that are only recorded in one, maybe two or maybe three of them. But this event is recorded in all four Gospels. All four authors remember this event or are inspired by God the Holy Spirit to place them in their their gospel. Let me give you those passages. Matthew 26, 51. Matthew 26, 51. Mark 14, 47. Luke 20, 22, 47. Luke 22, 47. And John 18, 10. All of these are recorded. Matthew 26, 51. Mark 14, 47. Luke 22, 47, John 18, 10. And again, there are many important events that are only reported by one uh, one uh, gospel writer, but they're important. This one is recorded by all four. Now, only John records his name, and we have that name in John. John 18, I was over in Matthew but in 
Matthew 18, we read, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And then parenthetically, and that's how you should probably represent that in your Bible, parenthetically, the servant's name was Malchus. Why Why is that important? If this is just one of many servants who happened to be in the high priest's employ, part of the event that night, if he just happens to be a bystander, why would his name be that significant? And by the way, John writes his gospel much later than the other three are written. I believe Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote early. Luke writes his gospel uh, about the time that the, that the Apostle Paul is going to Rome for his first imprisonment. But here in John 18.10, many years later, some think maybe almost six decades later, probably not quite that long, but certainly later, he mentions his name. I think he mentions his name because he became a convert. I think he becomes a convert. So we have this event. Um, John records his name and he knows him. I think he knows him personally. Uh, if you look just um, back in uh, Matthew or John 18, or no, down further in John 18.15. In John 18.15 it says, And Simon Peter followed Jesus. So did another disciple. This is how John represents himself in his gospel. Now the disciple, that now that disciple was known to the high priest. And he simply enters. So I think he knows who this servant is. The servant probably knows him. So there is some familiarity here. But in all of these gospels, again, he is described as a doulos, a lower station in life. But then the apostle Paul describes himself as a slave too, a bond servant, a doulos, which tells us that being a slave does not diminish the person but it's simply this relationship. And the Lord Jesus Christ died for slaves, for servants, for those in the lowest station of life as well. We're not told why he was in the garden. The high priest was not there, but I believe that he is a trusted servant and he probably was sent with the captain of the guard. And that's another uh, interesting uh, bit of study is who all was there? What was the actual size of the guard? But I think that he was sent. And I believe that the events of the night have been planned. As soon as Judas appeared to the high priests, they began to plan that night. And they know where they're going to take Jesus first. And the first place is going to be the high priest, the former high priest, who probably still has a lot of authority, Annas, and Anna. Uh, Anna. And I think the, high, the, uh, the servant is there the high priest servant is there to make sure that they lead them directly to him. And so, while we're not told why he is there, I think he had an important role. He was not just a casual bystander. And if he was a casual bystander, he wouldn't have been at the front. He wouldn't have been near the Lord Jesus Christ and near Peter at that time. So I think he's as much involved uh, as any of them. Ironically... His name is believed to be some variant of the word king. Malak is our Hebrew word, and it's highly likely that he had a Hebrew name, but Malchus is probably some sort of a derivative king. And it's ironic that here is someone whose name is king has come to the garden to take the Messiah, the future king of Israel, to the cross. Uh, the arrest. The group that came to arrest Jesus is described in uncertain terms. We have uh, one of the words that's described that describes it is spera. And spera is, uh, means something that is coiled in its literal meaning, but it later became known as or descriptive of a part of a cohort. And a cohort 
was made up of six centuries, which means there are 600 Roman soldiers in a cohort. Well, for any of you who have been to Israel and seen the Kidron Valley and seen the Garden of Gethsemane where the Lord was, um, you're not going to have an entire cohort down there. Now, some people believe it was just a third, that that may have been two centuries, which means we would have two centurions down there, probably with the captain of the guard of the temple mount, the temple guard. Um, But, uh, and it could very well be, because in Matthew we're told that it was a very great multitude, or it was a great multitude, um, which means uh, the chief priests and those who, uh, who went to make the arrest, wanted to be in complete control of what was happening that night. And let's just say there were 200 members of this third of a cohort. Um, that is an, that's an exceedingly uh, powerful force, plus the temple guard, to take someone who had done nothing, who was, for the most part, unarmed. There are two disciples who are armed. But this is an incredible force. Um, Anyhow, uh, this is the group that came to arrest this unarmed Galilean. Uh, And the reason I make that point is let's, if the, the high priest wanted to ensure that they were in charge, that they had a force that was strong enough to accomplish the, the mission. Let's read in chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, in other words, he was teaching his disciples. We're in John 18, 1. <clears throat> when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron. That's not a long walk. Where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, and knew the place for Jesus often went there with his disciples. And I think verse 2 is, again, a parenthetical statement. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? Uh, This is interesting. The Lord doesn't hide. There's no sense in the Lord that we need to prolong this. There doesn't appear to be any fear here. They're coming, and he goes to greet them. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, this cohort, third of a cohort, I am he. And Jesus who betrayed him also stood with him. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is a very simple statement. And again, this is not where I want to dwell. But anybody who's ever been around a formation of soldiers, marines, sailors, whatever, let's say there's 200 plus or around 200. And they're all armed. They're ready for battle. And they are knocked down by the force of his words. Can you even begin to imagine 200 plus people thrashing around on the ground? Helmets, Swords, spears, shields, who knows what all. They were not ready to be knocked down. They may have been alert or prepared for something, but they're suddenly on the ground. Boom! How long would it take them all to get back up, compose themselves, and get ready to talk to the Lord? And the Lord's simply standing there. Boom! Scramble, scramble. People running into each other, pushing each other, angry. How did that happen? You fell into me. Whatever that was going on. I mean, it was just mass confusion. For how long? I don't know. And the Lord's simply standing there. And then probably much to their dread, he asks the question again. <laughs> Whom are you seeking? And I imagine they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I'm he. Therefore you seek me, let these go, 
their way. So, again, the Lord Jesus Christ is about ready to go to be tried. He he understands the the events that are going to occur. And what does he do? His first thought is for his disciples. All right, you've got me. Here I am. I'll go peacefully. Let them go. Now, that is an important statement because what Peter is going to do, and Peter gets a lot of criticism for this, which I don't think he should. I, for some reason, always manage to take the individual side because I can see myself there. But we have, what we have here now is a situation where the Lord wants them to depart so that they cannot be tried for any treason, sedition, problems, or anything else. Let them go. Take me. That's what he's saying. Um, That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then we have, so we have the arrest here. And the stage that we have is that the, the Lord is now being arrested. He's demonstrated who he is. And he is now arrested. He has surrendered himself to them. They could not have taken him had he not surrendered. It didn't make any difference how many they sent. They could have sent three people. The Lord would have allowed it. They could have sent a legion. It wouldn't have made any difference. Peter here is often described in critical terms. But in reality, in the face of overwhelming force, I think he force, he acts bravely. And you might say, well, it was a rash decision. Well, it may have been a rash decision, but Peter knows who these Roman soldiers are. He knows that he and maybe one other person with the sword, it's futile. But he acts. One of the reasons, I think, is because he told the Lord. The Lord says, I'm going and I must die. And Peter says, we will die with you. And so Peter, even though this is ill-advised and probably futile, he draws his sword and he's going to do something. You know, you can always depend on Peter to say something or do something. He breaks the ice. And here, verse 10, then Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant. So here we have the stroke. He struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And then, of course, we have the name. Now, Peter is is acting contrary to what the Lord Jesus Christ wanted done. He doesn't want Peter involved. He doesn't want him tried for sedition. He doesn't want him tried for treason. He doesn't want him uh, tried for assault or murder. But Peter has acted. And now what does the Lord do? Well, anybody could say, well, there's a lot on the Lord's mind. He's got a lot more on his mind than this servant over here who's just been grazed by the sword. And yes, he's lost an ear, but, you know, the Lord is going to endure a lot more than that. But what does the Lord say? So the Lord said to Peter, put your sword in the sheath. And the text of Scripture there does not indicate any uh, emphasis or stress or anything else. He says, Peter, put your sword away. Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? In other words, there's events tonight that are going to occur. Now you'll notice, as we read the rest of this, that's all that James records. Interesting. He records the event, but nothing else. The healing and what the Lord does otherwise comes later. So here we have the stroke. And in my guess here, and I always like to try to put myself in the situation, I imagine that the servant, Malchus, is stunned. He's standing there. He's got a job. I doubt that he's armed, but he's in the midst of all these armed soldiers. And he's suddenly struck on the ear. Maybe he doesn't even know what happened. I would imagine, though, we have a natural occurring event. I imagine there's blood. I imagine there's pain. But he's stunned. Notice none of the authors, none of the gospel writers mention any actions by anyone else 
other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we're talking about professional soldiers. And they were probably alert. They're ready for something. But I also believe that the fact that they've been knocked down once has set the stage here. Something's happening. They realize they're not in control anymore. And no one else says anything. No one else does anything. Except the Lord. The Lord's the only one who acts. And what does he do? It's almost as if he erases it from history. No one is going to be able to see. Arrest Peter. He struck the... Well, there's no evidence there. Now, I don't know if he was still bloody or not. But we're going to see in a minute that the Lord resolves the situation. And why does he do that? Well, I believe, first of all, he has compassion for Malchus, who is there just doing his duty. But secondly, he cares about Peter. He's taking care of Peter. Peter, put your sword away. You have no action here. I'm going to drink the cup that the Lord has given me. The Lord's touch. And here we have the Lord's touch. Let's turn to Matthew, Matthew 26. And we'll just start to look at how this occurred. Matthew 26. And notice here that the high priest servant is there to to lead him toward the cross. He's part of what we would call a hostile force to Jesus. The Lord would say, serves you right. But he doesn't. He has compassion on them. The Lord takes mercy here, even on an enemy who came to arrest him and escort him towards his execution. We wouldn't have that kind of compassion. We wouldn't have had compassion for the thief on the cross. Matthew 26, beginning in 51. And suddenly one of them, we know this is Peter, of those who were with Jesus, stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And the understanding here of taking the sword is criminality. Those who live by the sword. This is not for protection because we are told very clearly in Romans 13 that those who are enforcing the law, those who are uh, lawfully using the sword, are righteous in their endeavors. This is criminality. Put your sword in its place. Why? Because these are legally authorized officials who are making the arrest. It, this is establishment here. Put your sword away. Or do you think that I cannot? <clears throat> We're going to have to go to another. Do you not think that I could now pray to my Father and He will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the Scripture be fulfilled that, this, that it must happen? Uh, now, uh, let's that's not the past I wanted let's go to Mark let's take a quick look at Mark go to Mark 14 actually let's go to Luke go all the way over to Luke Luke 22 Luke 22:52 and Luke 22:52 Uh, 52, 51. Ah, I like to go back up to 49. Then those around him, verse 49, when those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. In other words, he was saying, no, permit me to be taken. And it says, and he touched his ear and healed him. Now, this is interesting, and, and there's debates here on what what was actually the situation. Was the ear severed completely and on the ground, or did he pick it up, or was it uh, cut but hanging by 
uh, you know, a bit of flesh. It says that the Lord touched his ear and healed him. The sense there is that it wasn't completely severed. It was still there. And the Lord just touches him and heals him. Um, you'll notice that since we're in, in Luke here, it says, uh, this is, of course, the physician who notices this. We saw that Matthew didn't. We saw that John didn't. I think Mark does mention this as well. But he touches his ear and he heals him. Verse 52, Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So we have the Lord's touch here. Now, the Lord's touch, we see also in this then, you know, the Lord's healing touch. But this isn't the only healing that needs to occur. You know, there is a spiritual healing that needs to occur. And I'm going to address that with our last point. But I think that Malchus here is just out to arrest someone that he has heard the high priests condemn. And therefore, for all he knows, this is a criminal. But suddenly, the compassion, the mercy, the healing, the changing of his life, I think, is is going to be one of those dramatic events that changes his spiritual life as well. Now, the plan of the Father, and that's what I wanted to do in Matthew 26. So let's turn back to Matthew 26. We've actually just read this. But in Matthew 26, 52, Matthew 26, beginning in verse 52, the Lord said to Peter, and again, I I think this was a courageous um, action on Peter's part. I think that he knows that something wrong is happening and something should and must be done. And he acts. And the Lord says, Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How then could the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen? See, it was the Lord's plan. It doesn't make any difference how many are there. And it also doesn't make any difference that Peter is ready to resist. The Lord's not going to make a break for freedom here. This is God's plan. Yes, if the Lord wanted, if God wanted something else to happen, He could have caused it to happen. But this is God's plan. So it's the plan of the Father. And then we have the irony of the arrest. And this is found in Mark, Mark 14. Turn to Mark 14. I wanted to include all of these passages. So in Mark 14, Mark 14, verse 46 says, They laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against, as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. You know, the irony of the, of the arrest is that here they've come as if to take a criminal, needing to take him by force. And the Lord is innocent. He has done nothing to be condemned. And his plan is to go willingly, to simply go. The irony of the arrest is, this is exactly what God wanted them to do. The hour of darkness. We've read the hour of darkness here. The hour of darkness is found in Luke 22. I held my place in Luke 22, so it's easy for me to go back to Luke 22:52. The hour of darkness in Luke 22:52. This is the uh, our third passage. Luke mentions it. Of course, the physician uh, Matthew and Mark don't mention the healing, but Luke does. You know, I'm sure for Luke, this was a fascinating event. An ear has been completely severed. And I would imagine that Luke, 
uh, as a doctor would know that that's it. The year's gone. But Malchus now has literally a new ear. The ear is replaced. And I'm here to tell you, if he was hard hearing, he probably heard perfectly after this. But in Luke 22, verse 52, it says... Um, then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour. In other words, here we are in the darkness of night. In the cover of darkness, you've come out to get me. And the power of darkness. And of course we know that um, Satan is known as the prince and the power of the air, but also of darkness. And uh, it's during darkness that it's very often described by the word of God that he does his bidding. And unfortunately for us, as sinful men, we love darkness rather than light. And there is a contrast here in this hour of darkness, this Uh, action of criminality really is taking place and that's the arrest of this innocent man and then finally nine the cup that awaits the cup that awaits is back in John 18 John 18 says that our Lord Jesus Christ has a rendezvous with destiny he has a rendezvous with destiny John 18 10 Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And by saying that, Peter needs to understand that what's happening is God's will. And this is something that they would not understand, that they would have difficulty understanding. But this is exactly what God wanted. This cup awaits the Lord, and he is going to drink this cup. And then finally, here here we have the healing touch. And I say I forgot to change these numbers. But why mention Malchus six decades later? I think it's because of the Lord's healing touch. And it's not simply the healing touch of his hand on his ear, but I think it's the healing touch of his soul. There's no reason to mention him otherwise, but I think John wanted everyone who would read his gospel to know this is Malchus. And we aren't told any more about him. We don't know what he did. We don't know what he was doing at the time that John wrote. But I think the healing touch is not just the physical touch of our Lord Jesus Christ, but it's his spiritual touch, the touch that changes lives, that heals our wanting souls. And the healing touch here, I think, is seen in the high priest's servant. And I have no idea, we're not told, how long it took him to come to this conclusion. But there were others, and if we had more time, we could study others who came to the same conclusion when they saw the Lord Jesus Christ and knew who he was. They came to that identification, and they came to that moment in their life when they truly believed. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this day. Not simply today, but what this day means. Our risen Savior, Father, the tomb is empty. He is risen. And those are symbols for an extraordinary event in history, an event that begins with him going to the cross and paying for the sins of the world. Redemption was accomplished there so that we could be reconciled to you, Father, and you could be satisfied, propitiated. We are thankful, Father, not only for his saving work on the cross, but his resurrected uh, action that tells us that we need not be subject to death. We need not be subject to sin. That we can have a new life 
a new life in him. Father, we pray as we celebrate this resurrection day that we would uh, be fortified with these thoughts, realizing that we must have godly thoughts. We must have submission to you, your word, your desire, your plan. And Father, that we must humbly come to you every day so that we have this true intimacy with you so that we can understand the full impact of what this day means. Resurrection Sunday. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.